This is Postico Chronicles, and I'm your host, Matt Falk. Hello, listeners. Thank you for tuning in. We have a very, very exciting episode for you today. Uh, we're actually recording off our uh, from our regular uh, recording studio on UFT campus. We're actually in the Toronto City Hall. Our guest today is City Councilor Kristen Wong-Tam of Ward 13, Toronto Centre. She is someone who wears many titles, human rights activist, entrepreneur. She was a co-founder of Asian Canadians for Equal Marriage, which helped successfully advocate for legalization of same-sex marriage in Canada in 2005. She works with seven business improvement areas and seven committees and boards. She is without a doubt a champion of all things Toronto. How are you doing today, Kristen? Excellent. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, and thanks for uh, letting us into uh, your uh, office and uh, in City Hall. I gotta ask, like how, this seems like a lot of work, seven BIAs and seven committees and boards. Like, do you have any advice for like how you manage this or is it just like no sleep? <laughs> Lots of coffee, my friends, um, and, a, and of course, amazing staff. I have a, an extraordinary and stellar uh, group of individuals who work in my office. Uh, they really just bust uh, their, their gut open trying to get to every single meeting and issue. Um, they try to provide the, the, the integrity and care that people deserve in the city of Toronto. And for residents who are living in Ward 13, for those of your listeners who are trying to figure out what's Ward 13, well, let me tell you. Ward 13 is the center of Toronto. Like literally, it is the most downtown part of the city. Uh, 50% of our residents are tenants. A good uh, a number of them are low income. So that's almost uh, 49% uh, would see themselves as living below the poverty uh, level. Uh, we have all of the uh, Ryerson University campus. And if you've ever been to Toronto and visited the Eaton Center, uh, you have been in Ward 13. So that's uh, the area that I represent. It's a big area, right? Uh, it is sizable, um, but uh, geographically, it's not uh, sizable in terms of uh, the, the the volume of activity, the complexity of issues. Uh, right now, the city of Toronto is in the throes of a housing crisis. Mm -hmm. uh, we have all um, you know her, heard and read about stories, or perhaps are living uh, the experience of trying to uh, make ends meet. Uh, the cost of housing in Toronto is just exorbitant. Um, the average price for a one-bedroom uh, apartment is two thousand. $2,200. And if you can imagine, uh, if you're on a, a modest income, or perhaps you're a, a senior on a fixed income, uh, the city is becoming increasingly expensive. And people are starting to wonder, do they still belong here? Or do they have to move? And uh, what I work on, and this is why sometimes the work is just uh, really complicated, and sometimes heartbreaking, is that we work on, um, on issues of housing. How do we address the housing crisis? How do we ensure that people have access to safe accommodations uh, that are um, uh, reasonably priced. Uh, young people are forced with um, to face the big dilemma these days is that as they graduate university and colleges uh, with you know massive record student debt, can they continue to stay in this city? Um, and most people want to stay in Toronto, but it is becoming extremely difficult. Um, so of course, there are big issues across a big city like Toronto, a uh, leading city in Canada, one of the biggest cities in North America, um, and we are grappling with all of that. Um, and that's why 
the work is complicated, uh, but it's also incredibly rewarding because I do represent um, the most exciting part of Toronto, and, uh, and it's an absolute honor to serve the residents of Ward 13 Toronto Centre um, because they are resilient um, and they're funny uh, and, uh, and they're just overall darn good people. That's a great kind of uh, introduction to Ward 13 in the city of Toronto. Uh, and I'm really excited to talk about some of these housing crisis issues and the issues facing Toronto. Um, but first off, let's talk about like your long relationship with the city of Toronto. Like where did it start? Um, so where did you grow up and uh, what was that like? Um, I am an immigrant. Uh, my family and I immigrated to Toronto in 1975. Yes, I am that old. Um, and... Uh, my first home was uh, in Regent Park, uh, and Regent Park uh, is uh, is 69 acres of a, a Toronto housing uh, project. It's actually the largest social housing project in North America, um, and of course, I didn't live in all 69 acres, but of co- but that is the neighborhood that it's it's called, and um, and I, I I grew up um, in housing uh, that was. Uh, mostly government owned uh, almost all the time uh, and uh, and my parents uh, uh, are, are salt of the earth amazing extraordinary human beings um, but we also struggled because uh, English was uh, our second language including mine's uh, my dad had a grade four education my mother had a grade six education working class people they worked tremendous hours very long shift work uh, dad um, toiled away in the uh, in the kitchens of Toronto ho- um, uh, hotels uh, my mother worked in uh, factories uh, garment factories along Spadina and then along Carlaw um, and uh, and I have to admit I, I barely saw them because their hours of, uh, of work were so long um, so I was left oftentimes left to my own devices as a as a child, and I had a younger sister who uh, who just followed me around. Um, and uh, my earliest uh, memories of Toronto, um, when I first arrived, was uh, especially moving from tropical Hong Kong. Was I felt that Toronto, and I, I moved in Tor- to Toronto when it was October. Um, I remember just the city being gray, and I and I couldn't understand why everything was uh, not green and tropical like the island I came from. Um, but uh, just felt like the gray sidewalks, the gray buildings, the gray concrete, um, and people were hustling and bustling, and not necessarily meeting you with eye contact. Um, And of course, you know, I was very, very young, and I was overwhelmed by the whole experience. Um, Obviously, I've learned English, I've been able to (laughs) develop some proficiency in the language, uh, lost my accent, and uh, and now I, uh, I I am so proud to be Canadian. Uh, I have learned uh, and grew, and grew up with Toronto. Uh, when Toronto was uh, a place where everything was shut down at 8 p.m., uh, there was no vibrant patio street life. Uh, everyone was um, you know not it was not the cosmopolitan city in the 70s. Um, but I think all of that changed as I grew. Uh, and gain confidence in my Canadian identity. And I also saw a city that embraced multiculturalism, a city that was uh, bringing uh, and welcoming uh, people from around the world. And, uh, and the city just got more dynamic, it got bigger. And, uh, and I'm really proud to call myself a Canadian. Uh, and I love being a Torontonian. How old were you when you moved? That must have been like super difficult. Um, it was. I was. I was four years old, um, and uh, and so it. You know, it's uh, old enough to to climatize to new culture and to languages, um, mm-hmm. and uh, but at the same time, 
um, you know, with some really deep memories of where I where I was. Yeah. And so I I had already started school uh, in Hong Kong. I already had a sense of how do I get to school? Where where are my relatives? And we had we had a large family there. Um, and coming to to Toronto, all of a sudden. Um, everything became very strange to me. Uh, the, the, the food was strange, uh, the language was strange, the culture was strange, um, the faces of people were strange. Um, and so through the eyes of a four-year-old, um, you know, you, you, you kind of go through culture shock. Yeah. Um, but I think now, in, now as an adult um, and soon to be parent, um, I think about my own parents' experience. Uh, I wonder, you know, what was really going through my mom and dad's, you know, minds and hearts as they were struggling to keep it all together because they knew that we were, my sister and I were so reliant on them. And whatever fears and anxiety they had about the future, um, they didn't tell us. So even though we were poor, mm -hmm. uh, one thing I remember so clearly is that I had no idea we were poor. Um, growing up in social housing, I had no idea it was government housing. Um, there was always food on the table. Uh, it was always warm uh, and hot. Um, and, uh, and I always had clean clothes on, on my back. Um, and I always had uh, my knapsack filled with the things I needed to take to school. And, uh, and so my parents worked really hard to make sure I had a normal uh, life as a, as a child and then as a, as a young person. But as a, as a child, mm -hmm. I had no idea that we were living in poverty. Yeah. I had no idea that we were, we were poor. And it was only much later um, as I was moving through the transition of high school and mm -hmm. seeing other kids and understanding income and wealth and prosperity and poverty that I actually realized that uh, we were extremely poor uh, you know, growing up. So you're now a city councillor. What did you do before this? So you graduated from high school. What was that like? Well, I mean, I came out of the closet at age 16. Yeah. So that changed things quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And uh, as I mentioned, my parents are extremely hardworking. I, they're salt of the earth. Uh, they're, uh, I grew up in a Buddhist household yeah. and, uh, and was always instilled in us that our responsibility as one human being to another was to work towards the alleviation of suffering of other people and is to be caring and compassionate. Um, so it was actually quite shocking that when I came out at age 16 uh, that my parents didn't show me that same level of compassion. Um, and, uh, and I think that, uh, you know, coming out of the closet at age 16 mm -hmm. and telling my parents in the way that I did, um, my parents were thrown into this world of, of, of chaos because every dream and aspiration they had for me, all the work that they had put in to keep me safe as a child to provide a better life for me in Canada, all of a sudden their dreams were uprooted. And, uh, and so they felt that I had done something to myself, is that um, they, they, they thought it was a choice as mm -hmm. opposed to something that's inherent in myself. And, um, and at age 16, I was tossed out of the house. Um, and this has been a very difficult, um, at the early onset, it was a very difficult transition because I was literally just a teenager. I was not equipped for the adult world that I was uh, tossed into. Um, and my father, who's extremely calm, extremely, um, uh, uh, he's a beautiful human being, um, he lost control. And, uh, and his rage and, and, and loss of impulse um, uh, rendered a situation at home that was just uh, unagreeable to me. I just did not feel like I could stay. Um, and from 16 
17, 18, as the years went on, I've never returned home. I've lived on my own since then. And, um, and, uh, but my parents and I have reconciled, which is actually a really big deal. So for all those uh, LGBTQ Q listeners, uh, especially the young ones, um, whether you're in the closet now or you're or you're you're just tippy-toeing out, um, you know I can tell you it does get better because almost two years after I came out to my parents, uh, we had a, a reconciliation, and the reconciliation was beautiful because it was you know my father and I coming back together um, and actually making some conscious decisions to to reunite as a family and um and what he said to me was that um he still loved me um and uh and we forgave each other and 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 i i'm going to say we forgave each other because i forgave him for his his anger and his lack of understanding but he also forgave me for not being more patient with him and uh and it takes years to to develop the confidence to come out of the closet. I know things have changed dramatically, uh, but for a lot of young kids, especially those who are not living in big cities who have fewer supports, um, it's really difficult coming out. So be patient with yourselves. Um, and I would say also be patient with your parents um, because it does take time. Just as you come to terms with your sexual orientation as an individual, we cannot assume that just as we come out of the closet with simple words that we can ask somebody to just accept it instantly. It does take time. We have to provide education and patience. Um, but the world, uh, as we know, as people, as people learn, uh, is changing. Um, but there are some reactionary extreme right-wing forces that we have to be mindful that want to erode uh, the civic rights and equality that we have earned as LGBTQ uh, people. That's a very powerful story, and thank you so much for sharing that with us. Um, I think, as you said, a lot of young people today, um, even though it's like 2019, I think them, a lot of LGBTQT youth, um, I guess being tossed out the house or being like forced out of the house for coming out is still a very real thing today that happens to many, um, and that contributes to a lot of uh, youth homelessness. When that happened to you when you were 16, like, so I can't even imagine, like, what's the next step? Like, where is there support in the city? Um, the support that I found was largely through just the school network that was there. There was something called student welfare, mm -hmm. and I found myself on receiving mm -hmm. the student welfare. I had, um, was couch surfing. Uh, and uh, living uh, in on the, literally the couches in the living room of just kind friends who decided to just pick me up and drop me off in their place. Mm -hmm. um, and it was very difficult. I would say that I was uh, in this utter state of fraught uh, because I was already working uh, one part-time job. I decided I need to pick up a second part-time job. And then I end up... Um, you know, and still end up collecting student welfare because it just, you can't yeah. really make ends meet in the yeah. city of Toronto, even back then, uh, on minimum wage. And um, I started to um, uh, fall asleep in class because I was working such incredibly long hours. By the time I was actually able to finish school, get to my four to, um, uh, to uh, I guess, four to midnight shift um, at uh, at. Yeah, four to midnight shift um, uh, after a long day of high school classes, um, and then go to my second job, which was a midnight to 8 a.m. shift. Um, so that's 
What? <laughs> what kind six... of job is a midnight to 8 a.m.? Yeah. So I, ironically enough, I end up getting a job in a shelter. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I provided support and care for homeless women. So two shelters I worked with um, and worked in, uh, one of them was is called Nellie's, mm-hmm. uh, which is still an existing shelter for women and, and families. Uh, and the second shelter I worked in was called Rendu House. And Rendu House was run by the Society of St. Vincent de Paul. So um, this is tough work. And ironically enough, I was also uh, not well housed. Um, and I actually have to say, I wasn't well trained either. So it's mm-hmm. not like I had a degree in social work because right. I, I was still a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, but the standards back then in terms of frontline workers, especially for relief workers, because these are not the shifts that people want. Yeah. Um, and uh, But they are oftentimes the shifts that uh, one could get when they were a student. Um, so I was able to move from shelter to shelter, interestingly enough, as a shelter support relief worker, even though I myself was facing homelessness uh, in, a, in a very personal and real capacity. So... I guess fast forwarding a little bit, when did you decide to be a city councillor? Because I think that's like a really <laughs> conscious decision. Because yeah, you have to run for it. For, then, yeah. for sure. And uh, that's, a, that's a big quantum leap. So <laughs> I would say that I, I rebuilt my life. I was yes. able to get through uh, school. I, um, I ended up being extremely successful. I worked in real estate financial services. I ended up purchasing um, and, and operating a, a number of small to medium-sized businesses. I managed a, a real estate company. Um, and uh, I owned a, a commercial art gallery. And I bought a Timothy's World franchise uh, in mm-hmm. the church in Wellesley Village, which was a neighborhood I still absolutely do a love. Um, and I did all of that while I was uh, just sort of rebuilding my life out of this massive pile of chaos. Um, but all the commercial and financial success was not fulfilling for me personally. Um, so even though I had access to money um, and I was owning my own home and uh, I owned cars and I was just doing okay, um, but I did not feel emotionally and spiritually um, fulfilled because there were so many other people in the city that weren't doing well. And as I was taking a look at you know what could I do with my life, um, I thought, why don't I try to run for for local government um, and try to help people? And really, it was something as simple as the previous councillor was retiring, and uh, and a number of friends decided to throw me a party. And this party was on the second floor of Scallywags, which is this really iconic midtown pub. And they um, threw me this surprise party. And when I walked into the surprise party, there was a big banner that said KWT for 2010. Um, so they knew um, mm. there was a group of individuals who loved me very dearly. Uh, they knew that I needed to do this before I knew fully that I need to do this. And that same night, I stood on the window ledge of this pub um, in um, in this uh, sort of private space because uh, they booked off the, the room for us. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and I threw my, I, I sort of delivered my first rambling public, um, my rambling uh, 
political speech as a politician. And I said very clearly, and I remember this because I said, you know, I can't do this by myself. If I'm going to City Hall, you're coming with me. <laughs> and the my crowd of friends, and, and uh, they just erupted with applause. And before I knew it, I had a campaign team, and they were, like, sweeping me along the way. Um, so I had to chase them because I was thinking about it, but I had not committed. Um, but when they... Th- when they showed me such love and support and said, you've got to do it, mm-hmm. um, I decided to throw my hat into the race. And of course, um, you know, the history will tell us that I prevailed. And uh, and now I've prevailed again in 2014. Yeah. And I prevailed again in 2018. And I'm now serving my third term as city councilor. So three political campaigns. I mean, it was great that you had that kind of support, but also I think political campaigns are like notoriously like grueling and you know just generally the worst because there's all these slanders and you know people dig into your personal life. Um, You were elected first in 2010, right? Is that correct? Correct. And um, from what I was reading, the it seemed like it was was very tight race. Yeah, I mean, this is what happens when you have a wide open Mm -hmm. race. Uh, You have 15 candidates and nobody really has citywide name recognition. Um, And wide wide open races um, in the first past the post system uh, means that the votes are split in 15 ways. Um, and so, yes, it was nece- it was a tight race, but all open races um, are generally split in that same way, mm-hmm. unless you have someone with you know citywide name recognition who um, you know who is sort of a celebrity or a star candidate. Uh, and I would say most of us were not. Um, we were all uh, local animators and local activists. Um, uh, but I know that the one big difference, especially in the 2010 race, uh, was I had an incredible uh, gr- grassroots team. Uh, I was able to build support across a number of different uh, communities. Um, I also lost a significant amount of weight, um, and I canvassed um, the ward three times, which I think for most will, who, for most who are running campaigns uh, will probably recognize it was unheard of. Yeah. Um, I also end up taking eight months off of work. Uh, which is a luxury that I had, and I burned up my savings mm-hmm. uh, in order for me to canvas and campaign full time. That is not something that everyone can do. Um, so I do recognize that there was that privilege that I, I exercise in order for me to be a full time candidate. Um, I've actually had a, a really good conversation with uh, some of the leading uh, candidates at the time. Uh, they shared with me some of their own personal ideas and, and what they wanted to do to make the communities better. Um, and it was actually great because we, you know, we've now, you know, we stayed in touch at the very beginning of the, the new term. Um, but some people have moved to New York. Some folks have sort mm-hmm. of um, moved out of the city. Um, and so I don't get to see them as much. I think you won elections three times now. And... I think in the most recent election, you had like a, 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 I guess a pretty lead in the election polls. Um, how does it feel? Because I don't think a lot of people win <laughs> political elections, right? Like it must be a great feeling when. Yeah, no. So my third, uh, my third term was very different because the new Ward 13 that yes. I just described with such robust love um, is actually new to me. Mm-hmm. So because Bill 6, which is the provincial uh, act that came from Doug Ford, our premier, uh, decided to slash council literally in half uh, in terms of the size during the middle of an election that was already underway, it kind of threw Toronto's election into chaos uh, in 2018. Um, so two-thirds of Ward 13 is brand new to me. 
So I had to go back out to this brand new ward and introduce myself to new communities. Um, and uh, and so that was, uh, that doesn't usually give an, as an incumbent, there was no advantage there because these folks were like, we think we know you, but we don't really know you because you're not our counselor. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had to work hard uh, once again, as I always do, because I don't take anything for granted. Uh, when you grow up poor, uh, you grow up the underdog, you just don't take things for granted. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one thing that people don't know about me, except for maybe those who, who grew up with me in high school, because I was an athlete, is that they, they may not have known that I'm very competitive. Mm-hmm. Um, so anybody who's out there who's an athlete, you know what I'm talking about. When the adrenaline hits you uh, and the pistol is, uh, is shot off during the start line, you just, you run. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so that kicks in, uh, as it generally does, because I'm tuned like an athlete, I guess. And, um, and off we went. Um, but, you know, we, we don't take anything for granted. And I'll tell you, one of the big differences between the community I now represent um, and and the one I represented in 2010 is that um, the demographic shift um, and, and the ward boundary uh, changes. Um, this this is also a community that's much poorer. We have over 30% of TCHC housing in Ward 13. Wow. That means one third of the the Toronto housing uh, portfolio. And I mentioned it's the you know TCHC was one of the largest. Ho- it is the largest housing uh, social housing provider in in North America. Uh, I represent one third of that community right now. Um, and some of the the homes that people are living in are this in this state of um, uh, uh, dis, dis, disrepair. Yeah. Uh, and that means that we need um, government dollars because this is a government asset. TCHC with Toronto Community Housing is 100% share uh, uh, owned by the City of Toronto. So we are the 100% shareholder. Um, and when we have assets or buildings um, and, and, and TCHC campuses that are failing, it is our responsibility to invest and upkeep that. Um, so there is a, a level of responsibility that I feel personally on my shoulders that perhaps counselors who don't represent TCHC uh, housing, they may not feel. Mm. For my residents, it literally is a difference between uh, a good quality life and then something that is just going to make their lives miserable if we don't invest in quality housing, uh, quality uh, government housing. Um, so I bring to my, my role this lived experience as a child. Um, and all the hardship that I went through, and even my emotional and political growth uh, to where I am now, and um, and I'm still learning. I, I don't have all the answers. Um, I find it to be an incredibly humbling humbling experience because there's so many different complex issues that are that are tossed at you at any given time, uh, especially. In a, in a politicized, highly politicized environment such as local government, uh, when you represent a, a really poor uh, part of Toronto in the wealthiest, quote-unquote, con- uh, city in Canada, yeah. uh, there are people make assumptions. They make assumptions that downtown Torontonians are all wealthy and that we have no problems. And uh, I can assure you that um, that's not the case for everybody. And we are living with real challenges. Yeah, I think... In addition to, uh, I guess, the uniqueness of your ward, of Ward 13, um, you're also, I wouldn't describe like as like a typical city councillor. You're very involved. Um, I'm going to list some things that you've done in your career. And I was wondering if you could give some context as well as tell us what you're feeling. Um, so in the 2016, after the Orlando massacre, uh, you delivered kind of like a heartfelt speech where you introduced um, your queer Muslim partner, Farah Khan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, you also ended your speech with a kiss. Can you talk about that? 
Um, well, yes, uh, I can. Um, people are always very fascinated by the coming out story. Mm -hmm. um, it's my coming out story. Oftentimes, is not painted with vivid details, uh, and that's because I try to protect the identity of people who are who are central to 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 these stories. As someone who is a politician, um, I do receive threats, uh, and uh, and even though I, we live in a, a very fair-minded city, uh, and uh, and a, and I think a, a very fair-minded country. Um, being different uh, oftentimes puts you out there, uh, and and sometimes people want to harm you. Um, the the Orlando shooting uh, changed a lot of things for me. Um, so Farah and I were engaged, um, and uh, and I had every intention of just sort of living my private life privately, and and doing my public uh, my political work publicly. Um, and so we were actually going to be married um, at the 519 uh, Church Street Community Center, which is the LGBT community center in Toronto. Uh, we were going to be married in, 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 and, and did get married in July 2016. Only one month earlier, we know that the Orlando shooting in the U.S., um, which took the lives of 49 um, individuals in a gay nightclub uh, called Pulse uh, and injured the same number of people, um, changed everything. Uh, when we heard that news that day, um, I think she and I both looked at each other and we just wept um, because it just it, it, it seemed almost unreal. Um, and there were so many reasons to be fearful because Farah is Muslim and her story will, will be told by her um, when she's ready to talk about her story. Um, but, you know, she lives with Islamophobia. And by mm -hmm. way of, uh, of after 9-11, I would say for a lot of Muslim people in the, in the West, um, it changed the way they, they see themselves, but also the way the West sees uh, people of, the, of, um, uh, of Muslim faith. Um, so I had already been aware of this, r this rise of Islamophobia because I'm, I'm engaged to a Muslim woman. Um, and, uh, and when when the shooting took place, which seemed like a very, at that point in time, a targeted uh, act of violence against those who are LGBT, um, it kind of threw our, our personal existence into a very public way, and I felt compelled to speak up. Um, and I knew that the, the name of the, of the sh shooter uh, was Muslim, and I wanted to, to send a signal to the community um, that this is not about us versus them and that we had to be in this together. Um, and so even without any rehearsal, because we, we did it so, um, uh, it was a reaction because we were pulled to the stage, we were asked to speak, and I was asked to speak. Um, and for the very first time, people found out I was number one, engaged, but I was also engaged to a very prominent uh, activist and also in her own right, a human rights activist and a, and a, a, a thought leader on the issue of gender-based violence. Um, and I, I let people know that I, was, uh, uh, that I was engaged to a queer Muslim woman. And, uh, and I think for, for those who are watching this live broadcast, especially since CBC was broadcasting live across the country, um, it seemed quite... Um, I mean, we didn't rehearse it, but I, I leaned over and kissed her, and we kissed each other in front of the podium, and we were flanked by a number of uh, MP, MPPs as well as um, members of parliament, and the community was out in full force at Barbara Hall Park, um, and uh, it was just all captured. And I think what resonated with a lot of folks is that 
you could tell that the moment was not rehearsed. Um, mm -hmm. Kristen, who is a, you know, as a prominent queer activist in Toronto, had stood up and said, we are not going to be divided. And that love is far stronger than hate. Um, and that if you're coming for one of us, you're coming for all of us. So that was really the message that I had to deliver. I felt is that the community needed to know that we were going to be okay and that we were going to be safe. And Far and I, who represent both Muslim and, and queer people, um, was going to be um, somehow an embodiment of all that. recently, in January of this year, you advocated for uh, the city of Toronto to declare homelessness a state of emergency. Uh, could you explain that? Um, we have 9,000 people sleeping rough um, in the city of Toronto. That means that they are sleeping in shelters without permanent housing. They're sleeping in the ravines, they're sleeping on the streets, um, they're sleeping in respite centers and drop-in facilities. They're kind of sleeping the way Kristen slept in, uh, in those years uh, at age 16 on a couch somewhere without permanent address. Um, and these 9,000 uh, people um, are our families, our friends, and our neighbors, and they're just fellow Torontonians, and actually many of them are from uh, other places across Canada. Um, but they have found their way into the city, and the city has not been able to provide uh, safe permanent accommodations for them. Um, and because the crisis is, has been brewing for some time, we're not meeting our targets of building affordable housing, which was supposed to be 1,000 new units of housing over the last 10 years. We failed miserably, missed the mark. Uh, we have a, a housing crisis and a shelter crisis of proportions that we've never seen before in the city. And I felt that it was actually important for us to act with a level of urgency that was going to be coordinated with other governments. So I asked City Council to declare housing uh, and homelessness a crisis so we can bring all orders of government, all the institutional forces to bear and respond to this crisis. And I wanted us to do this through the human rights lens, which I think is critical because Canada has signed a number of conventions that specifically talk about housing as a right, mm -hmm. and we as subnational governments should be working through that framework. It was not supported at city council. Uh, I'm personally disappointed. Uh, and every time I think um, any of the councillors, including the mayor, mm -hmm. as we walk past people who are homeless, as we talk about homelessness uh, and not take action when we had a chance to take forceful and meaningful and intentional action uh, is, a, is a squandered opportunity. Um, so there have been highs and lows at city hall. Um, there and, and at City Council. And I would say um, the January vote when that lost, for me, represented one of the personal lows. Um, but it's not even just, I say personal because I moved the motion, but I think it represented a political low point at City Council because Council lacked the leadership to do what was right. During the 2018 City Council election, you were also subjugated to uh, sexist and racist attacks and even death threats. Um, There's like a lot of inf misinformation about your character, about policy decisions. Uh, you wrote about in an article in Now Magazine that I urge everyone to read. Um, can you talk about that and also um, why you're being targeted? 
When I won the election in 2010, uh, history was made in the city. I was the first out lesbian to be elected to the local government. Um, and uh, and there wasn't a lot of fanfare. I think people kind of moved into this postmodern world of, of gayness and felt that, you know what, hey, great, mm -hmm. but not a big deal because gays are now everywhere. Um, and, and that's at the surface level. But when you dig a little bit deeper, um, there are still big structural barriers for queer people. Um, as, a, as a person who is a, of racialized background, as an immigrant, as a, you know, as, as I guess originally as a working class person, um, there are a number of structural barriers that exist for individuals uh, to access uh, political decision making and power. And I know that um, I represent a threat uh, and the threat for those who are of the extreme radical right, um, I'm their worst nightmare. The last thing what they want to see is probably a Kristen Wong Tam or some type of, you know, progressive, uh, queer, um, woman of color, uh, immigrant in the mayor's chair. Mm -hmm. And um, and I know this to be true because I've oftentimes. Um, have had to deal with individuals who've dismissed me right off the top based on skin color, gender, sexual orientation, right off the top. And, you know, I'm patient. I try to provide education. I go about it very slowly. Um, but it is uh, very, very difficult. And so the 2018 was probably the most difficult election for me, uh, even though generally the first election for any new candidate is the diffi most difficult. But I found 2018 difficult mm -hmm. because there was a surge of right-wing trolls mm -hmm. on social media that I had not experienced in the past. Um, and these are anonymized attacks that are that basically throw out garbage, like literally made-up garbage, yeah. to perpetuate um, and feed upon the dog-whistle politics of racism, uh, queer, uh, homophobia, and, and all, the, all of that. And it gets amplified in a way uh, because you can't necessarily stop it, uh, not in its tracks and not immediately. Um, so I called that out and specifically named it for what it was. Um, and, sub, and now, in 2019, uh, what we're seeing is the, the federal government talking about reining in social media and trying to curb this, these platforms that are oftentimes unregulated. Mm -hmm. uh, so there is now this global call. Uh, of, uh, of pulling back the, um, uh, the dark corners of the internet. Um, and, um, you know, we saw this in the, in the uh, presidential election in the U.S. Uh, with uh, Hillary Clinton and Pizzagate. Uh, we saw this, um, and if, for those listeners who, who need a, a memory jog, uh, Pizzagate was this rumor that was just created online about how Hillary Clinton was part of this child pornography, child sexual exploitation ring that was being run in the back of a pizza parlor. Uh, and so vulnerable individuals who are susceptible to false, false news and, and these, um, these lies, um, one of them picked up a, a semi-automatic gun and went in there to the pizza parlor to try to liberate these children. Yeah. So that's the harm that, that, these, uh, that these stories can, can manufacture. Um, and the, Bo Obama, the um, Barack Obama uh, birther um, uh, conspiracy is another great example where he was he is he's a he's American-born uh, uh, individual, uh, uh, Mr. Obama, 
President Obama, um, but you know the the lies kept perpetuating is the fact that he was Muslim and he was born abroad. He was not Canadian. He was not American born, and people were threatening his family. And Michelle Obama has recently has recently written about it in her book about the harm it did, which was this falsehood that was perpetuated and amplified on social media, completely un. un um, Un, un, um, uh, protested, and uh, and and it legitimized uh, people who were who had dark thoughts, who would then be mobilized to violent action. Um, and so, when I wrote my article in Now Magazine, I was specifically thinking about how what I had seen in the U.S. and which happens, uh, quite honestly, to a number of candidates who happen to be racialized, who are mostly women, who are mostly immigrants. I knew this was happening, and then it happened again, but this time to me in a very big way. Um, and so I called it out, and now we're seeing the federal government trying to rein in Facebook and and Twitter um, and uh, and 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 different social media um, platforms, including the ones where um, uh, where the dark edges of the internet exist, uh, 4chan, 8chan. So you've done so much for the city of Toronto in many years, and the city is always changing. Um, and I think in this interview, this short interview, it doesn't really cover up everything you've done for the city and for the marginalized peoples uh, inside the city. Um, and I, but I think like many people, when they read the headlines, they're just getting disheartened by politics, by what's going on. Um, and as someone who is in the political sphere, what do you have to say to the people who are just kind of getting desensitized and disheartened and getting this kind of extreme anxiety? Well, I think, um, you know, number one, be, be kind to yourselves. I think it's absolutely important to recognize that we are living in some pretty tough times. Um, the headlines are screaming bad news all the time. And I think that self-care is, 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 is a radical revolutionary act. Um, and that means, you know, taking a breath, being easy on yourself and showing yourself compassion so that you can then, then in turn be that compassionate individual to your family members as well as to your friends and to your community and and your 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 city. Um, I personally am optimistic. I don't think I could have survived as long as I have survived and actually thrive without being optimistic. And I say the glass is half full and that's because I keep filling it. And I and I know that you know people out there um, they can go into dark places we all can and 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 sometimes we have um, but there's always light and and recognize that you are valued um, and that our collective success is only going to be there for us in the future if we're able to get together and work on those issues to solve these complex problems the problems around climate change the the problems around ending um, uh, violence against women and children and child exploitation the challenges of uh, of, of automation that is coming um, that is probably going to change the way we do work once again um, and the challenge around affordability around housing and the transit crisis like these are issues that are made and manufactured here in Canada, in Toronto, around the world. People made problems. We can solve them with people made solution. And by centering the human being and, and that 
being the driving value of how we move forward, uh, I think is critically important. Um, and I know that we can do it. Um, I have seen extraordinary power uh, come from the voices of young people who are rising, and they're saying to those of us who are older, you guys have messed things up, and we're going to fix it. Um, and I see this with millennials who are talking about another world as possible as they fight towards clean water, clean air, sustainable and renewable energy. Um, I see it. I see it when 100,000 kids uh, across Ontario come out and protest the, the Ford, the, the premier Ford cuts to education, demanding a quality of education, which actually is an investment in the future of our, our province and country. I see hope and optimism in their faces. And uh, thank goodness um, that they've arrived. That was our conversation with Councillor Kristen Wong-Tam. Postico Chronicles is hosted and produced by me, Matt Falk. Alice Coombs was the co-producer for this episode. Special thanks to Tiffany Persaud and Mick Falk. Our staff also includes Rostislav Soroka and Kasun Medigadera. Our main theme song is called Last Energy for the Day by Loyalty Freak Music, and there are other music credits on our website. If you liked what you heard, please give us a rating, share us, follow us on our social medias. Thank you so much for listening. We will see you soon.